have um, your Bible or your tablet or your smartphone, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 40 this morning. If you haven't been with us before, if it's been a little while, um, we, we tend to just teach straight through books, um, and so we've been in Exodus since the fall. Um, and so this morning is actually our last sermon, and Exodus will be done this week and beginning a new book next week. We're going to be headed into uh, 1 Corinthians. So back to the New Testament to one of Paul's letters. But this morning, um, we're going to finish Exodus, and instead of doing a little bit of recap to begin, um, we're, going to, we're just going to kind of do some recap for most of the sermon. Um, so let's, let's pick up, we're just going to read Exodus 40. And so let me set the scene real quick before we read um, that we have had the golden calf incident where the people of God have rebelled against Him, um, where a plague has come upon them, where 3,000 people ended up dying over this. And the Lord had told them, look, I'm going to send you to the promised land without me, without my presence. And we see them respond well and rightly because they say, no, that would be disastrous. We want you. We don't want just what you have to offer. We want you. And so we then had chapters 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, which are the, the people of God now building the tabernacle, building all those supplies that would be needed. And it's the reminder that God's plans are not thwarted. And we're seeing that His um, details that He had laid out earlier in Exodus are being built and done exactly according to plan. And so now Exodus 40 is going to culminate um, the book for us. So let's begin in verse 1. So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put it in the ark of the and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up a screen for the door of the tabernacle. And you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. And then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is in it, and consecrate it, and all of its furniture, so that it may become holy. And you shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering, and all of its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. And you shall anoint the basin in it, stand and consecrate it. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him, and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. And you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout, their na- throughout the generations. And Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And so in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And now from 18 down to 33, we see him simply erecting and the tabernacle, but pick up with me in verse 33. And he, and he erected the court around the tabernacle, talking to Moses, and the altar, and he set up the screen on the gate of the court, and so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the houses of Israel throughout all of their journeys. And so, right, we kind of have this like this glorious kind of last verse of like, and this is then throughout the rest of their journeys how things were going to go. Because remember, Exodus is simply a part of the Pentateuch. One of the, the first five books of Scripture, Exodus is part two. The story continues as we look at Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Um, that, that these Moses is still alive, right? Like that this is simply a continuation of a story. And so what I want us to do this morning is this, is, is initially, is I want us to do some comparison and contrast between how Exodus started and how it ends, that we see these kind of bookends of what's going on, um, to remind ourselves of where we've come um, over the last several months. First and foremost, let's remember this, in Exodus 1, Right, that the, the people of God, the Hebrews, the Israelites, whatever you want to call them, are slaves. Right, that they are slaves in Egypt to a harsh taskmaster, one who was ruthless, one who poured more and more weight and burden upon the people. That when he would ask for things like "I want you to make bricks," he would take away the straw and say, "Now you have to go gather your straw and still provide the same amount of bricks." That he was a tyrannical leader that they had been there for 400 plus years, feeling forgotten. And so it's why in Exodus 1 we see the people of God crying out and asking God to remember them, asking God to rescue them. We see this tyrannical leader killing their children, right? Wanting all the male children put to death, right? That he is looking to completely, like, just hold them down. He was afraid that they would rise up um, and rebel from within, and so he wanted to remove some of the threat with the men, right? But he was using them simply as, as slaves for his kingdom and for his power and for his buildings, that their lives were bitter and that they were not home. They knew they weren't home, that this was not where they belonged, right? That's where Exodus starts with this sense of just darkness and foreboding of the people of God are not where they belong, and they're not under the leadership that they belong with. And now we have walked through Exodus. And Exodus 40 is painting a very different picture than Exodus 1, right? Because in Exodus 40, right, here's what's happening is Moses is taking the things that have been built by the different um, artists and craftsmen, the, bringing the, the different poles and the pole bases and all the things that we've seen built, all the things that have been sewn, all the clothes that have been made, and he's standing there, and he begins to actually erect it. He begins to build it before them. And now at the end, you know, it's like one of those Christmas presents, right, that you put together, and you're like, okay, is it going to work, right? That they've spent all of this time making it and building it to these um, intense, um, detailed instructions. And Moses finishes, and he builds it, and he steps back, and then the glory of God fills it, Right? That it, that it works, that they have done what he has commanded. They've done what he's asked, and the glory of God fills this place. And remember, the tabernacle is going to be this in the center of their camp, and the people are going to camp around it. And whenever they travel, as they move 
towards the promised land, it's going to go with them. It's like a portable Mount Sinai where they have seen God give them the law, where they've seen God speak. They've heard Him speak. They've seen Him fall there in power and in glory. And so the tabernacle is now there. And so they know that God is with us. And so the difference is, is they now have this place of worship, right? That that God is with them, that He has been faithful to do what He promised. That a year prior, right, a year prior that God had said, I'm going to take you out in the wilderness so that you can know me and worship me. And the reason that in verse 2 it tells us that it's the first day of the first month is because it is exactly one year since the Passover. It's exactly one year since the day that the Lord went through Egypt and rescued His people, that they left Egypt. And now a year later, they're remembering the reason we're able to stand here and worship, the reason the tabernacle is built, the reason God is here with us is because He has rescued His people. Right? And so they're watching it build, and they're seeing this visible demonstration of the presence of God fill this tabernacle. And they're remembering, you know, you've got to think this whole year has been a pretty crazy year, that they've gone from having very mundane and bitter and harsh lives in Egypt, right, doing the same thing day in and day out, being crushed, right? And now over the last year, they have seen God's hand reach down and pluck them out of Egypt. He's now led them through the wilderness, providing miraculously food and water, that He has parted the Red Sea, right, that He has protected them from their enemies. They've seen Him in a, in a fearsome way at Mount Sinai. They've had some of their, their friends and loved ones die because they rebelled against God. They've been, received the Ten Commandments twice, right? Like, there's been a lot has gone on that, that this year has changed everything, and now they're standing there going, God's with us. And they're not yet where they are going to go, right? They're still headed to the promised land, but that God is with them and that He is going to guide them, that God has rescued them and freed them to love Him and to know Him and to serve Him, that they, don't, they no longer have this harsh taskmaster, this tyrannical leader, but they have this faithful, merciful, gracious God who is both just and forgiving, right? That, that He's not just looking to crush them, that they rebelled against Him and justice was, was passed, but there was also mercy. Can you imagine if they would have rebelled against Pharaoh, right? Just the harshness of looking to destroy them and to wipe them off the face of the earth. That they are a known people now, that they are loved, that they are forgiven, that they've been given a new way to live. This distinction with the law that God has given them to say, this is the way that I'm going to have you live, and it's not going to be bitter and harsh lives and that they are headed to the promised land with their God, right? That they could have imagined that just earlier God had said, look, you're going to go on without me, and now here it is as God's saying, no, 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 I'm with you. I'm faithful to what I've said I'm going to do. I'm going with you. And so worship and rejoicing would have occurred because God was with them. The second thing is not just that that Moses ends Exodus contrasting how it began so that we see this distinct difference, is that I want us to be reminded this morning as we wrap up Exodus of just what God has revealed about His character. Now, we cannot begin to go through all the little nuances of the things that we've seen about God, but one of the, the, the key facets of Exodus is this, is that God is 
revealing himself to his people and teaching them how to respond to him. And so would we remember this morning what God has revealed? Um, these are, are really in no particular order of, of significance. Um, but the first is this, that God has revealed that he is a forgiving God. Right? And it, it's easy for us to, that's, forgiveness is one of those words that we just kind of, we nod our heads at because it's tied so intimately with, with Jesus and with Christianity. But would we not be so quick to run past this idea that he is a forgiving God? That the scene that we have seen most recently was Aaron leading a rebellion, right, to worship a golden calf, to worship something that they can manage and control rather than God, that they have seen the holy God rescue them and speak to them and do all of these incredible and mighty deeds, and then they're quick to say, ah, we'll take a calf. And in that, that God has brought mercy and forgiveness instead of just, right, wiping them out. Instead of just starting over with Moses, that forgiveness comes. Like that we don't want to move too quick past that, that we have a God who is a forgiving God. Right, as we scoff and as we think about, I would have never built the calf. Though that if we think about our last week, our last month, our last year, our lifetime, you're in need of forgiveness. Maybe, maybe even this morning, right, as you think about how things have gone. Right, as we think about, right, the, the ease and even the arrogance that we come before God, that he just kind of owes us, that we're, right, he, he should do what I want him to do because I've done decently, right, that, that we are in need of forgiveness and we see in Exodus, right, where we, we think sometimes of the Old Testament of being harsh, right, if we think of God in the Old Testament often maybe as Pharaoh, right, this harsh taskmaster looking to destroy us, looking to pulverize us. And what we leave Exodus with is that God is a forgiving God. We see also that God is gracious, that he rescued his people before he gave them the law, right? So the law comes, and an expectation comes, but it's not that he says, all right, while you're in, in this hard place in Egypt, while you're still trying to figure this thing out, I'm going to give you some rules, I'm going to give you some law. If you can do all right at that, I'll rescue you, right? You can prove that you're my people. No, right? He goes to them at their worst when they were slaves, demonstrating his mercy, his grace, and he rescues them out. Knowing, right, rebellion was coming. Knowing whining was coming. Knowing faithlessness was coming. He rescues them out of their slavery and of their misery and of their hard lives. And then he gives them an expectation of what it looks like to know him and to follow him. Right, that we would see that he is gracious. And so often we, we feel like what God is saying to us is, hey, figure it out in your own life. And once you figure it out, and once you clean yourself up a little bit, and once you look a little better, and once you seem a little more conservative, show up in church, and we'll see if we can work out a deal. Right? I'll give you a little bit, you'll give me a little bit. And that is not the gospel. That is not the truth of Scripture at all, is that Romans tells us, and we see in Exodus, Romans 5, 8, or in, in Exodus here, that God demonstrates His love for us while we're at our worst, while we're in need of deliverance, while we're in need of rescue. He pours out grace and mercy to the undeserving, right? He does it first, and then He calls us to walk in faithfulness and obedience to Him. 
Not because we've earned it, but because we've received something that we could not pay back. We've seen not only is God forgiving and is He gracious, but He is holy. Right? And maybe these feel a little bit um, contrary to you, but they're not, right? We're seeing the character and the fullness of God laid out before us is that He is holy. And so when Mount Sinai, when God speaks and the whole nation is standing around the mountain, hearing the voice of God speak to them, they're seeing power as He descends um, in, in, in a cloud and in thunder and lightning on the mountain that people are trembling as we sing this morning, right? They're backing up from the mountain because they're going, He's holy, And if I touch it, I die. If my animal touches it, they die. Right? He is a holy God, and we're not. That He is without sin, that He is perfect. And so we see this elaborate process of going into the tabernacle, right? That there's a priestly system with clothing and with sacrifices and with washing and all of these things that have to be followed to the nth detail so that once a year, one person could walk into the most holy place. Right? Like that there is a way in, but this, this elaborate process that involves a lot of bloodshed and a lot of detail that we can't just like stroll in and say, hey God, how's it going? Right? Like that's not, He is holy. And that they aren't. That they have seen, right? And where we see ourselves reflected in this, that they see God work and move in mighty ways, and then they go, what have you done for me today? Right? What have you done for me lately? That they are saved by a holy God. But they're not just saved by a holy God, they're saved from a holy God. That it is God rescuing them, and church, He's rescuing us from Himself. That our greatest enemy is not death. Our greatest enemy, right, isn't Satan. It's that we are the enemies of God. That apart from Christ, that we stand in rebellion towards a holy God a place that we cannot touch lest we die, that we cannot approach lest we die, that he says, if, if it's not for my grace and my mercy, you are utterly consumed. He is holy. Not only is he holy, not only is he gracious, is he forgiving, he's in control. Right? And we've seen this in a variety of ways, especially early on in Exodus, that he's in control of Pharaoh's heart. Right, that he is in control of Pharaoh's heart. So we have to be reminded, right, that some more scriptural later go on to say that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, that places that man and woman cannot reach that God can, that he can touch hearts that are far from him. That he, he's in control through the plagues, right? And so through the plagues that come, we see that God is able to, to be in control of time, that he would say, here's when the plague will start, here's when the plague will stop. He's in control of it. He's in in control of, like, location. That he would say, like, put boundaries and barriers and say, this plague will only affect this area and not that area. He's in control of people. That he would say the plague will only affect these people and not these people. That God is in control. That he is sovereign. We've seen it through his miracles, right? That he provides water miraculously in the wilderness that he provides food miraculously in the wilderness, that he parts the Red Sea, right? That we wouldn't take these as simply Sunday school stories, right, and coloring pages that we remember as kids, but we would say God is powerful and he is holy and he is mighty and he is able. And if he is able to do this, then what can he do in my life? 
God is also faithful. Words that we use so often in church, but when we realize how much we aren't faithful, right, like that, that we're not faithful towards the Lord, right? We're just, we're just not, that we tend to be dismissive, we tend to be whiny, we tend to like kind of say, hey, I need you to do something again, right? Like what you've done maybe isn't enough, I'm, I'm struggling to want to worship you today, that he is not thwarted by us that when the people of God attempt to rebel and to flee from Him, that His plan, He's not going, oh, what am I going to do? They're not acting right. That God's plan is seen through because He is faithful. So church, what we've seen is this, that, that God makes a promise to Abraham back in Genesis. And He says, after 400 years of slavery, Abraham, I'm going to rescue a people out, and I'm going to take them out, and we're going to take them to the promised land that God is showing that He's faithful to that promise that He made generations before. That He has been faithful in Exodus to do everything that He said. He told Moses, I'm going to be with you. He told Moses, I'm going to take you out into the wilderness so that the people can worship. That everything God has said, that He has been faithful to see it through. If we think back even to Genesis, right, to the story of Joseph, right, that we just see this consistent theme of God's faithfulness throughout Scripture that Joseph ends up in prison, right? And that God is faithful to him there, that his life isn't over there. It's not ended there. It's not, right, that he says he brings him out of that, that he is faithful not just in the good circumstances, he is faithful in the hard circumstances, that he is with us in the good and in the bad, and that when we can't see what's going on, that he is still with us, he's still working, he's still faithful, And so sometimes the wilderness lasts longer than we want. And what Exodus teaches is that God is faithful and that He is with us in the midst of it, whether we see Him or not. That what got the Israelites into the issue of the golden calf was that they felt like God hadn't spoken recently enough. That in 40 days on the mountain with Moses, they hadn't seen Moses and they hadn't heard from God. And so they're like, well, I guess He's gone. Let's do our own thing. In 40 days... When they had seen the Red Sea part and food on the ground and water provided and Pharaoh's army drowned, like all these things, and in 40 days they're ready to walk away. That God is faithful even when we feel like He's silent. That God is faithful even when we can't see what He's doing. That God is faithful even when the circumstances are not what we want them to be. That we don't always see the other side, but God does, and He is taking us somewhere. Even in our waiting. Another thing we see about the character of God is not only is He faithful, He's present. He's present. And I think sometimes the way we view salvation is we view like God saves me, right? Like He, I I trust the gospel, I pray a prayer, I get baptized, okay, I'm good, I'm saved. And then God says, I'll see you in heaven. And then we just kind of maneuver through life for however long we have. God doesn't just rescue us and then drop us, right, with our fire insurance card so that we can know Him and heaven someday, that he enters into relationship with us, that he transforms us, and that we then move through the wilderness of life towards the promised land of heaven with him, that he is present. It's why we see here in in Exodus that it ends with this, that the tabernacle is built, and that would not be sufficient. It wasn't until the glory of God filled it 
that we can be like, okay, he's with them. They're with him. He's with them. It's the way things are meant to be. It shows us back to Genesis, right, that we were created to be with God. Revelation ends with us with God. The point is that you know God, that you're with God, that he is with you. Not just that you know some information and know some facts, it's that you are walking with God. So the cloud is a tangible, visible representation of the invisible God. Saying, I'm here, I'm present, I'm with you. That he is coming into their circumstances. Right? That the holy God is saying, you dwell in tents right now and you're nomadic. I'll dwell in a tent in your midst that is portable that can go with you. That he comes and dwells in our circumstances with us in the wilderness. He doesn't just say, okay, I gave you a good head start, and I'll stand here at the finish line. He says, let's go together. This wasn't just for them, this is for us too. Right, that if you feel like you're in the wilderness of addiction to sin, if you feel like you're in the wilderness of health issues or relationship issues, or whether you feel like you've just been forgotten and forsaken, that God is saying, I'm with you in your circumstances. I haven't left. I'm at work in this. We see that the people of God were saved for his glory. Right? It wasn't because he was like, y'all shouldn't be slaves. It was, y'all shouldn't be slaves so that people will know that I am the rescuer, so that I am the king, so that I am the holy one, that they would see me and worship me and know me and rejoice in me. And so he gives them gifts, right, of art and of craftsmanship and of leadership, all these different things, and they use it to build things for his glory so that people would know him. He calls us a kingdom of priests. Right, Priests are those who have access to God, who intercede on behalf of others. He tells Israel, you're going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations, that they would see me and know me and come and worship and rejoice. It's the reason he gives them the distinction of the law, so that they would be set apart and different from all the nations of the world, so that people would see they live differently. Why do they live differently? Because of their God, who rescued them. Right? That that we are sitting here over 3,000 years later talking about the rescue of a small nomadic people out of one of the great superpowers of the world, right? Like that we're still talking about this. And so in Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God tells Moses, look, I'm going to rescue you so that, that Israel will know that I am faithful to the promise I made to Abraham, so that they'll know that I'm God. In Exodus 14, 17, and 18, he says, I'm going to rescue you so that Egypt knows. Right? We see in Exodus 15, it says that the nations, right, for generations would tremble at the God of Israel because of what he did at the Exodus in their rescue. Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that the nations will know me because of how I treat and deal with y'all. And so this morning, we are recipients of this. The nations know about this God because of what God did in Exodus and in setting his people free. That we are recipients of this. And then the final thing this morning is I, don't, I didn't want us just to compare and contrast. I didn't want us to even just look at the character of God revealed. But I want us to leave Exodus clearly seeing Christ in this. 
right? That we would clearly see that this isn't just an Old Testament book to know facts of, but that we see Jesus. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better Moses, because Moses, right, this is not in any way to disparage Moses. Moses leaves Exodus a hero, right? Like, he's the one who has mediated on behalf of the people. He's the one that has told God, blot me out if it means you will keep them. He's the one who has led them, and we've seen his growth and his maturity. Moses is a hero in Exodus, even though he is failed and flawed. But what we see is that Jesus is a better Moses because when he mediates with God, it works. When he goes to God on our behalf, God approves it and accepts it. When Moses went on behalf of the people, God says, you can't because you need forgiveness too. You need atonement as well. Moses if you continue the story, doesn't get them to the promised land. He doesn't get to go in himself, right? He gets right up to the edge and doesn't get to go in. Jesus takes us to heaven. He gets us to the promised land of rest with him. Look at the end here of Exodus 40 in verse um, 35. So verse 34 tells us the cloud, like the glory of God, fills the tabernacle. Look at verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses has had this intimate relationship with God, right? They've met as friends when meet. He's gone up on Mount Sinai and met with God. And then when the glory of God fills this place, says he he wasn't yet able to go in. But what Hebrews will teach us is this, is that Jesus walks into the throne room of God and he sits down at the right hand of the Father because he is the better Moses. He's not stopped by anything. He's not thwarted by anything. He is able to walk before the king because he is God himself. We see that they have built here in Exodus 40 the tabernacle. They've accomplished this great task, right? But, they, but if they had had it and they built it and it was there and God doesn't fill it, it's all for naught. It's for nothing. They could build it, but God had to fill it with glory. He had to fill it with his presence. Church, what a great reminder for us that we we can build a church service, right? We can can plan a worship set, and we can can plan a sermon, and we can plan all the, the child care and all those things, but unless the Lord meets us, it is for nothing. It's for nothing. And it's why the building doesn't matter. Right, And it's why a lot of those things are, are, are inconsequential because what we need is God. What we long for is the Lord, and it's why we continue to try to fight for things to be so like, simple and stripped down here at Redeemer that you'll know that. That what we don't want is for you to be able to come for a month or for six weeks or two months and go, people are really nice, I've been really entertained. Not sure if I've met with Jesus, though. We want you to come in and go, there's not a lot here, Right? And so if, if there's not, then it means the Spirit better show up because that's, that's all there is to offer. And so, right, like that we have faithfully asked the Lord to do this, and He has been faithful to meet with us, not because of us, despite us, right? Not because of the building, not because of the name, not because of the way we do things, but because He is forgiving and gracious and faithful and present and with us. And what you need is Him. 
right? That we can build it, but the Lord has to fill it. He has to be the one who is present. Jesus is also the better mediator in one other way. Look at this in verse 33. So Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. And listen, so Moses finished the work. I hope as you hear Moses, it says he finished the work, that maybe your mind goes to John 19, right? Verse 30, where Jesus on the cross says as he is dying, it is finished. That the work is done, and Jesus accomplished a different, more permanent work. When he says it is finished, the Lord is satisfied. His wrath is taken care of because Jesus' work was perfect, that he was the mediator that we need. He makes us right with God. So we see that he's not only the better Moses, he is the better high priest. That he didn't just walk into a building built by men and women. He walked into the throne room of God, not a copy of it, into the actual throne room. That he gave one sacrifice, his life, once and for all, not needing a sacrifice prior because his, in his perfect life, he was a worthy sacrifice, able to be giving himself on our behalf. For, and so when Aaron then, is, it says, it describes his clothing over and over and over again, when Scripture tells us we're clothed in righteousness, right? It's why we don't have elaborate robes and turbans and things like that this morning, because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, where the Lord God the Father looks at us and sees us covered in Jesus' perfect life, his perfect sacrifice in his resurrected body, and says they're mine. They belong to me because of what Jesus has done on their behalf. I hope as we move through Exodus and as we are finishing Exodus that you would see the consistency of Scripture, right? That, that the wrath of God is poured out in Exodus upon Egypt. It's poured out on 3,000 who rebelled. But God's wrath is also poured out in the New Testament on Jesus on behalf of us, those who are actually guilty. That there's the consistency of Scripture in that blood is required, right? That you had to sacrifice to get into the tabernacle. That Jesus was sacrificed. His blood was spilt so that we could enter the, the heavenly places, right? That we could have access to God again. The consistency that Jesus as holy as God is holy, that God's point is to be with us. And so he rests in the tabernacle, and then Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 2.9 says that he embodied all of the, like, the deity of God, like was in him, in, in his body. Like that God is with us, and that he guides us still. And so Exodus 40 ends saying this, Throughout all their journeys in verse 36, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, like it lifts up, the people, they would pack up camp, right? And they would follow the cloud to wherever it led. And when it stayed, they stayed. That it was leading them, that it was guiding them, that it was taking them wherever they were going, and that he guides us still. There's a reason when Jesus is leaving, he tells the disciples this, it's better for me to go because you're going to get a helper. You're going to get the Holy Spirit within you. And so God is still guiding us today, not through a cloud, not through a pillar of fire, but through his spirit within us, through his word, and through a living Jesus that we can 
access through prayer. All right. One final thought and we'll be done. As they would have looked at the tabernacle now finally built and completed sitting in camp, there would have been one entrance in. And as they would have walked in that entrance, they would have known there's a way to God. And as soon as they came in, there would have been an altar where blood would have had to have been spilled, sacrificed. And then there would have been a basin where they would have had to have washed, right? These reminders of what had to take place before you could get to the veil that then covered this place where God's presence was. Church, this morning, when you think of the tabernacle, will you think of Jesus, that it was his blood spilled on your behalf so that you would see an entrance, a way to God, that his blood cleanses you of your sin because he is satisfying the wrath of God on your behalf. And then when, his, when he says it is finished, that veil is torn and access to God is restored. And it's not restored because you are so good and right and holy. It's not because you attend church. It's not because you live in West Texas. It's because God is faithful to make a way for him to be with his people and for his people to be with him. And it's through trusting that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cover your sin and your rebellion and your wickedness to make you no longer an enemy but a friend of God, an adopted son or daughter of the king. And so the blood has been spilled, and it wasn't yours, even though it was yours that was deserved. And you've been washed in it, and the veil is gone, and so you now have access to the king because of Jesus. So this morning, we are going to take the Lord's Supper during our last worship set, knowing that as they would have seen the tabernacle, they would have remembered God on Sinai. They would have remembered all that he's done. They would have been remembering the Passover from one year before that we take the cup and we remember his blood spilled on our behalf. We take the blood or the bread and we remember his body broken on our behalf. That the reason that we have hope and peace and joy, the reason that you can go to God in prayer, the reason that the Holy Spirit guides you, the reason that we have received grace and mercy and salvation is because Jesus was crushed and you weren't. And because he's alive, because he was sinless and perfect and holy, and is living today. And so this morning, if you are in slavery, if, if sin just holds you, rescue is available in Christ. And if you are currently in the wilderness, would you be reminded, despite your circumstances, beside, beside, despite how lonely or alone you feel, you are not alone. You have not been forsaken. God is at work in the circumstances of your life to take you on to where you belong. He is with you. And if this morning, if you are simply thinking, I'm one of the Hebrews there at the tabernacle, I'm not in the wilderness, I'm not enslaved, then you worship the God who has rescued you, the God who has never left you and never forsaken you, that you are no longer a slave and you are no longer alone. Because you have a king who has come for you and has made you right with God. Let's pray.